Hello everyone, and welcome back after this long vacation, sojourn. This is The Legend of Drizzt, a dramatic reading by Chadwick A. Daigle, who is myself. I bet a lot of you are wondering what has taken me so long to start back up again. I have had a couple of you come and talk to me on Twitter and Facebook and a couple of the other um, applications that I mentioned you could reach me at, and I thank you all very much. I really appreciated everything that you had to say and and how much you enjoyed the podcast. Thank you for those of you who decided to sit and listen through the entire thing, all, was it 14 hours, 13, 14 hours? It, uh, it, it, really, it really made me feel good. See, I'm an entertainer, performer at heart, and uh, knowing that I've reached as many people as I did uh, around the world, Literally, people from around the world had listened to this podcast, and it was amazing for me. I, 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 I was humbled about how many people actually sat and listened to it and listened through the entire thing, bearing with me in my very first podcast ever with all the... Someone once put on the... Um, review i think it was on itunes mentioning how it wasn't too bad even though all the burps and belches and and sounds coming from everywhere were slightly distracting i apologize i will let you know i am still working on this as um i am now recording through a computer and using a Yeti microphone, and I'm very, very happy with it and excited to go with this more. I'm interested um, in, in experimenting more. Currently, I'm using a very simple voice recorder, but I do plan on purchasing, once I get some more money, the uh, audio recording software from um, Blue, for Blue Microphones, and uh, giving you... Um, more quality recordings. I really am interested in doing this. It's it's very exciting to me. Um, and I uh, I just wanted to say um, again, thank you to everyone who had listened to this. Um, it going back to where I mentioned that so many people from around the world had listened to this. It wasn't because it was Chadwick A. Daigle doing a dramatic reading far from it it was the title the legend of drizzt that caught people's attention and it just goes to show how strong and beloved this this character and these stories are to so many different people they renamed it the legend of drizzt when they re-released these books uh what this printing actually is the legend of drizzt book two Exile, which is what I'm going to start with now. Yay. But it wasn't called The Legend of Drizzt until approximately uh, 2003, 
2004 when they re-released all of them uh, in hardcover um, in individual series calling it the legend is before this exile was book two of r.a salvatore's the dark elf trilogy which was actually the second trilogy uh he had written using the character of drizzt um and he wrote it because it was so exciting and such a popular character with his uh, icewind dale trilogy which is the first story he wrote um the crystal shard that was uh, telling the story of all the friends of Mithril Hall. That's what they later became to know. Bruno or Wolfgar, Caddy Bree, Drizzt, and Regis the Halfling. And um, it grew to such huge popularity. Uh, that's why they ended up writing. People wanted to know more about who Drizzt was. And so he wrote this uh, Dark Elf trilogy. So now, when I first started this podcast, I should say last year, gosh, it's been over a year, almost a whole year, I should say, um, since I started this. I did it because it was the 30th anniversary of the uh, Icewind Dale trilogy, the, the, the birth of Drizzt Orden, as it were. Uh, when it was brought to the mainstream and written in the book. Of of course, the characters, I don't know if any of you knew this or not, but the characters of Drizzt and Regis and all those characters, um, they were characters that Salvatore and his friends, they had when they were playing Dungeons and Dragons um, back in the 80s. And uh, he decided, Ari Salvatore did, decided he wanted to go and take the exploits of his adventures and... Uh, write them into a book form, which is what a lot of folks have done. <clears throat> That's basically how uh, the story, the, the world of Greyhawk, which was the original D&D uh, world set in that was created by Gary Gygax back in um, the late 70s to early 80s. And uh, even Ed Greenwood, who basically was the founder and creator of the Forgotten Realms with his uh, primary character of Elminster the Great, crazy old perverted wizard that he is <laughs> um and he drizzed the warden the legend of drizzed that series of novels always had a very special place in my heart because of the type of person that drizzed was he he like a lot of people out there who love the character and feel for the character he was he was an exile from those that looked like him um, and exiled from those who didn't look like him because he looked the way he did the color of his skin his hair his eyes um, it was what people judged him by when they first saw him and that's kind of what resonates with a lot of people that that being judged by other people it doesn't matter <clears throat> race creed sexuality um, a lot of people feel the way Driz did but he held to his own he, he fought through quite a bit to be his own person and maintain 
his own person. And that's one reason why everybody likes the character so well. And why he resonates with so many people. Um, that's why he resonated with me, because I felt that way. I mean, not to the same extent as Driz did. But, sort of. I was a pudgy, fat kid. Made fun of being overweight. <laughs> a little funny looking. <laughs> Wearing glasses. Yeah, it wasn't... Uh, it wasn't the most ideal. I wasn't the best looking kid when I was younger. I'm not the best looking guy now. But I have a lot of friends and family that uh, love and support me. And I'm thankful for that. Just like Drizzt had. He had his friends and his family. His friends who became his family that loved and supported him. And so this is dedicated to all of you who feel like a stranger in your own skin, in your own family, in, in your own community. Um, there are people out there that are like you and feel the same way you do. You're not alone. Don't feel that you are. We all love you. And we can relate. Be strong. Look forward. Be yourself. And know that what happens to you in your life is what you want to have happen to you. Anything that does happen and it tries to harm you or hurt you, it's up to you to take that experience, learn from it, and apply it in a positive manner to yourself so that you become better and you can build. Don't dwell on what other people think, but take what they do think and learn from it and know that there are others like you feeling the same way and, and have the same sense of strength and uh, spiritual power that you have. Alrighty, who is interested in hearing a story? You are? Oh, well, wonderful. Let us get down then to Are Salvador's The Legend of Drizzt, Book 2, Exile. To Diane, with all my love. The monster lumbered along the quiet corridors of the Underdark, its eight scaly legs occasionally scuffing the stone. It did not recoil at its own echoing sounds, fearing the revealing noise, nor did it scurry for cover, expecting the rush of another predator. For even the dangers of the Underdark, this creature knew only security. Confident of its ability to defeat any foe, its breath reeked of deadly poison. The hard edges of its claws dug deep gouges into solid stone and the rows of spear-like teeth that lined its wicked maw could tear through the thickest of hides. But worst of all was the monster's gaze, the gaze of a basilisk, which could transmute into solid stone any living thing it fell upon. This creature, huge and terrible, was among the greatest of its kind, 
it did not know fear. The hunter watched the basculus pass as it had watched it earlier that same day. The eight-legged monster was the intruder here, coming into the hunter's domain. He had witnessed the basculus kill several of his rove, the small cattle-like creatures that enhanced his table. With its poison breath and the rest of the herd had fled blindly down the endless tunnels, perhaps never to return. The hunter was angry. He watched now as the monster trudged down the narrow passageway just the route the hunter had suspected it would take. He slid his weapons from their sheaths, gaining confidence. As always, as soon as he felt their fine balance, the hunter had owned them since his childhood, and even after nearly three decades of almost constant use, they bore only the slightest hints of wear. Now they would be rested again. The hunter replaced his weapons and waited for the sound that would spur him into motion. A throaty growl stopped the basculist in its tracks. The monster peered ahead curiously, though its poor eyes could distinguish little beyond a few feet. Again came the growl, and the basculist hunched down, waiting for the challenger, its next victim, to spring out and die. Far behind... The hunter came out of his cubby, running impossibly fast along the tiny cracks and spurs in the corridor walls. And this magical cloak, the Pawathi, he was invisible against the stone, and with his agile and practiced movements, he made not a sound. He came impossibly silent, impossibly fast. The growl issued again from ahead of the basilisk, but had not come any closer. The impatient monster shuffled forward, anxious to get on with the killing. When the basilisk crossed under a low archway, an impenetrable globe of absolute darkness enveloped its head, and the monster stopped suddenly and took a step back, as the hunter knew it would. The hunter was upon it then. He leaped from the passage wall, executing three separate actions before he ever reached his mark. First, he cast a simple spell, which lined the basilisk's head in glowing blue and purple flames. Next, he pulled the hood down over his face, for he did not need his eyes in battle, and against a basilisk, a stray gaze could only bring him doom. Then, drawing his deadly scimitars, he landed on the monster's back and ran up its scales to get to its head. The basilisk re reacted as soon as the dancing flames outlined its head, but did not burn, but their outline made the monster an easy target. The basilisk spun back, but before its head had turned halfway, the first scimitar had dived into one of its eyes. The creature reared and thrashed, trying to get at the hunter. It breathed its noxious fumes and whipped its head about. The hunter was the faster. He kept behind the maw of death's way. His second scimitar found the basilisk's other eye. Then the hunter unleashed his fury. The basculus was the intruder. It had killed his wrath. Blow after savage blow bashed into the monster's armored head, flecked off scales, and dived for the flesh beneath. The basculus understood its peril, but still believed it would win. It had always won. If it could only get its poisonous breath in line with the furious hunter... 
the second foe, the growling feline foe, was upon the basilisk then, having sprung toward the flame-lined maw without fear. The great cat latched on and took no notice of the poisonous fumes, for it was a magical beast, impervious to such attacks. Panther Claws dug deep lines into the basilisk's gums, letting the monster drink of its own blood. Behind the huge head, the hunter struck again and again, a hundred times and more. Savagely, viciously, the scimitars slammed through the scaly armor, through the flesh and through the skull, battering the basilisk down into the blackness of death. Long after the monster lay still, the pounding of the bloodied scimitars slowed. The hunter moved his hood and inspected the broken pile of gore at his feet and the hot stains of blood on his blades. He raised the dripping scimitars into the air and proclaimed his victory with a scream of primal exultation. He was the hunter, and this was his home. When he had thrown all of his rage out in that scream, though, the hunter looked upon his companion and was ashamed. The panther's saucer eyes judged him, even if the panther did not. The cat was the hunter's only link to the past, to the civilized existence that the hunter once had known. Come, Guenava, he whispered as he slid the scimitars back into the sheaths. He reveled in the sound of the words as he spoke them. It was the only voice, voice he had heard for a decade. But every time he spoke now, the words seemed more foreign and came to him with difficulty. Would he lose that ability, too, as he had lost every other aspect of his former existence? This the hunter feared greatly, for without his voice, he could not summon the panther. Then he truly would be alone. Down the quiet corridors of the Underdark went the hunter and his cat, making not a sound, disturbing no rubble. Together they had come to know the dangers of this hushed world. Together they had learned to survive. Despite the victory, though, the hunter wore no smile this day. He feared no foes, but was no longer certain whether his courage came from confidence or from apathy about living. Perhaps survival was not enough. Part One I remember vividly the day I walked away from the city of my birth, the city of my people. All the underdark lay before me, a life of adventure and excitement with possibilities that lifted my heart. More than that, though, I left Manza Baranza with the belief that I could now live my life in accordance with my principles. I had Guenevar at my side and my scimitars belted on my hips. My future was my own to determine. But that drow, the young Drizda Orden who walked out of Menza Baranza on that fated day barely into my fourth decade of life, could not begin to understand the truth of time, of how its passage seemed slow and the moments were not shared with others. In my youthful exuberance, I looked forward to several centuries of life. How do you measure centuries when a single hour seems a day, and a single day seems a year? 
Beyond the cities of the Underdark, there is food for those who know how to find it, and safety for those who know how to hide. More than anything else, though, beyond the teeming cities of the Underdark, there is solitude. As I became a creature of the empty tunnels, survival became easier and more difficult all at once. I gained in the physical skills and experience necessary to live on. I could defeat almost anything that wandered into my chosen domain, and those few monsters that I could not defeat, I could surely flee and hide from. It did not take me long, however, to discover one nemesis that I could neither defeat nor flee. It followed me wherever I went. Indeed, the farther I ran, the more it closed in around me. My enemy was solitude. The interminable, incessant silence of hushed corridors. Looking back on it these many years later, I find myself amazed and appalled at the changes I endured under such an existence. The very identity of every reasoning being is defined by the language, the communication between that being and others around it. Without that link, I was lost. When I left Menzelbrands and I determined that my life would be based on principles, my strength adhering to the unbending beliefs. Yet after only a few months alone in the Underdark, the only purpose for my survival was my survival. I had become a creature of instinct, calculating and cunning, but not thinking, not using my mind for anything more than directing the newest kill. Guinevere saved me, I believe. The same companion that had pulled me from certain death in the clutches of monsters outnumbered rescued me from a death of emptiness, less dramatic perhaps, but no less fatal. I found myself living for those moments when the cat could walk by my side, when I had another living creature to hear my words, strained though they had become. In addition to every other value, Guinevere became my time clock, and I knew that the cat would come forth from the astral plane for a half day every other day. Only after my ordeal had ended did I realize how critical that one quarter of my time actually was. Without Guinevere, I would not have found the resolve to continue. I would never have maintained the strength to survive. Even when Guinevere stood beside me, I found myself growing more and more ambivalent toward the fighting. I was secretly hoping that some denizen of the Underdark would prove stronger than I. Could the pain of tooth or talon be greater than the emptiness and the silence? I think not. Drizdorin. Chapter 1. Anniversary Present Matron managed a word and shifted uneasily on the stone throne in the small and darkened anteroom of the great chapel of House Dorden. To the Dark Elves, who measured time's passage in decades, this was a day to be marked in the annals of Malice's house. The tenth anniversary of the ongoing covert conflict between the Dorden family and House Hunet. Matron Malice, never one to miss a celebration, had a special present prepared for her enemies. 
Breeza Dorden, Malice's eldest daughter, a large and powerful drow female, paced about the anteroom anxiously, a not uncommon sight. It should be finished by now, she grumbled as she kicked a small three-legged stool. It skidded and tumbled, chipping away a piece of mushroom stem seat. Patience, my daughter, Malice replied, somewhat recriminatory, though she shared Breeza's sentiments. Jalaxel is a careful one. Risa turned away at the mention of the outrageous mercenary and moved on to the room's ornately carved stone doors. Malice did not miss the significance of her daughter's actions. You do not approve of Jalaxel and his band, the matron mother stated flatly. They are houseless rogues. Breeze's spat in response, still not turning to face her mother. There is no place in Menzel Baranzan for houseless rogues. They disrupt the natural order of our society, and they are males. They serve us well, Malice reminded her. Breeze wanted to argue about the extreme cost of hiring the mercenary band, but she wisely held her tongue. She and Malice had been at odds almost continuously since the start of the Dord and Hunet War. Without bringing death, we could not take action against our enemies, Malice continued. Using the mercenaries, the houseless rogues, as you have named them, allows us to wage war without implicating our house as the perpetrator. Then why not be done with it, Brisa demanded, spinning back toward the throne. We kill a few of the Hornet soldiers, they kill a few of ours, and all the while both houses continue to recruit replacements. It will not end. The only winners in this conflict are the mercenaries of Brigand Death, and whatever band Matron Senefe Hornet has hired, feeding off the coffers of both our houses. Watch your tongue, my daughter. Malice growled as an angry reminder. You are addressing a matron mother. Brisa turned away again. We should have attacked House Hornet immediately and the Nidzak Nafian was sacrificed. She dared to grumble. You forget the actions of your youngest brother on that night. Malice replied evenly. But the matron mother was wrong. If she lived a thousand more years, Brisa would not forget Drizzt's actions on the night he had forsaken his family. Trained by Zach Nathian, Malice's favorite lover and reputedly the finest weapon master in all of Menzel Branson, Driss had achieved a level of fighting ability far beyond the drow norm. But Zach had also given Driz the troublesome and blasphemous attitude that Loth, the Spider Queen, deity of the Dark Elves, would not tolerate. Finally, Drid's sacrilegious ways had invoked Loth's wrath, and the Spider Queen, in turn, had demanded his death. Matron Malice, impressed by Drid's potential as a warrior, had acted boldly on Drid's behalf and had given Zachnafian's heart to Loth to compensate for Drid's sins. She forgave Drid in the hope that, without Zachnafian's influence, he would amend his ways and replace the deposed weapon master. In return, though, the ungrateful Drizzt had betrayed them all and had run off into the Underdark, an act that had not only robbed House Dorden of its only potential remaining weapon master, but also had placed Matron Malice and the rest of the House Dorden family out of Loth's favor. In the disastrous end of all their efforts, House Dorden had lost its premier weapon master, 
the favor of Loth and its would-be weapon master. It had not been a good day. Luckily, House Hornet had suffered similar woes on that same day, losing both its wizards in a botched attempt to assassinate Drizzt. With both houses weakened and in Loth's disfavor, the expected war had been turned into a calculated series of covert raids. Brisa would never forget. A knock on the anteroom door startled Brisa and her mother from their private memories of that fateful time. The door swung open and Dinan, the elder boy of the house, walked in. Greetings, matron mother, he said in an appropriate manner and tipping into a low bow. Dinan wanted his news to be a surprise, but the grin that found its way into his face revealed everything. Jalaxle's returned, Malice snarled in glee. Dinan turned toward the open door, and the mercenary, waiting patiently in the corridor, strode in. Brisa, ever amazed at the rogue's unusual mannerism, shook her head as Jalaxle walked past her. Nearly every dark elf and nuns of Ranzen dressed in a quiet and practiced manner. In robes adorned with the symbols of the Spider Queen and or in supple chain-link armor under the folds of a magical and camouflaging Piwafwi cloak. Jalaxel, arrogant and brash, followed few of the customs of Menzelberanzen's inhabitants. He was most certainly not the norm of drow society, and he flaunted the differences openly, brazenly. He wore not a cloak nor a robe, but a shimmering cape that showed every color of the spectrum, both in the glow of light and in the infrared spectrum of heat-sensing eyes. The cape's magic could only be guessed, but those closest to the mercenary leader indicated that it was very valuable indeed. Jarlaxle's vest was sleeveless and cut so high that his slender and tightly muscled stomach was open for all to view. He kept a patch over one eye, though careful observers would understand it is as ornamental, for Jarlaxle often shifted it from one eye to the other. My dear Brisa, Jarlaxle said over his shoulder, noting the high priestess's disdainful interest in his appearance. He spun about and bowed low, sweeping off the wide-brimmed hat. Another oddity, and even more so since the hat was overly plumed in the monstrous feathers of a diatrema, a gigantic underdark bird, as he stooped. Brisa huffed and turned away at the sight of the mercenary's dipping head. Drow elves wore their thick white hair as a mantle of their station, each cut designed to reveal rank and house affiliation. Jarlaxle, the rogue, wore no hair at all, and from Brisa's angle his clean-shaven head appeared as a ball of pressed onyx. Jarlaxle laughed quietly at the continuing disapproval of the eldest door and daughter and turned back toward Matron Malice his ample jewelry tinkling and his hard and shiny boots clumping with every step. Brisa took note of all of this as well, for she knew that those boots and that jewelry only seemed to make noise when Jarlaxle wished them to do so. Is it done? Matron Malice asked before the mercenary could even begin to offer a proper greeting. My dear matron Malice, Charlaxle replied with a pained sigh, knowing that he could get away with the informalities and light of his grand news. Did you doubt me? Surely I am wounded at my heart. Malice leaped from her throne, her fist clenched in victory. 
Dipri Honet is dead, she proclaimed, the first noble victim of the war. You forget, Massage Honet, remarked Brizen. Slain by Driz ten years ago, Anzac Naf in Dorden, Brisa had to add against her better judgment. Killed by your own hands. Zagnavian is not my noble birth. Malice sneered at her impertinent daughter. Brisa's words stung Malice nonetheless. Malice had decided to sacrifice Zagnavian in Driz's stead against Brisa's recommendations. Jarlaxle cleared his throat to detect the growing tension. To deflect the growing tension. The mercenary knew that he had to finish his business and be out of the house to Orden as quickly as possible. Already he knew, though the Dordans did not, that the appointed hour drew near. There is the matter of my payment, she reminded Malice. Denon will see to it, Malice replied with a wave of her hand, not turning her eyes from her daughter's pernicious stare. I will take my leave, Jalaxel said, nodding to the elder boy. Before the mercenary had taken his first step toward the door, Vierna, Malice's second daughter, burst into the room, her face glowing brightly in the infrared spectrum, heated with obvious excitement. Damn, Jalaxel whispered under his breath. What is it? Major Malice demanded. How's Hunet? Vienna cried. Soldiers in the compound! We are under attack! Out in the courtyard, behind the cavern complex, nearly five hundred soldiers of House Hunet, fully a hundred more than the house reportedly possessed, followed the blast of a lightning bolt through House Dorden's adamantine gates. The three hundred fifty soldiers of the Dorden household swarmed out of the shaped stalagmite mounds that served as their quarters to meet the attack. Outnumbered but trained by Zagnafi and the Dorden troops formed into proper defensive positions, shielding the wizards and clerics so that they might cast their spells. An entire contingent of Hunet soldiers, empowered with enhancements of flying, swooped down the cavern wall that housed the royal chambers of House Dorden. Tiny handheld crossbows clicked and thinned the ranks of the aerial force with deadly poison-tipped darts. The aerial invaders' surprise had been achieved, though, and the Dorden troops were quickly put into a precarious situation. Hunat has not the favor of Loth, Melis screamed. It will not dare openly to attack! She flinched the refuting thunderous sounds of another, and then still another bolt of lightning. Oh, Brisa snapped. Malice cast her daughter a threatening glare, but didn't have time to continue the argument. The normal method of attack by a drow house would involve the rush of soldiers combined with a mental barrage by the house's highest-ranking clerics. Malice, though, felt no mental attack, which told her beyond any doubt that it was indeed House Hunet that had come to her gates. The clerics of House Annette, out of sp the Spider Queen's favor, apparently could not use their loth-given powers to launch the mental assault. If they had, Malice and her daughters, also out of the Spider Queen's favor, could not have hoped to counter. Why would they dare attack? Malice wondered aloud. Brisa understood her mother's reasoning. They are bold indeed, she said, to hope that their soldiers alone can eliminate every member of our house. Everyone in the room, every drow in Men's Brandon, understood the brutal, absolute punishments exacted upon any house that failed to eradicate another house. 
Such acts were not frowned upon, but getting caught at the deed most certainly was. Risen, the present patron of House Dorden came into the anteroom then, his face grim. We are outnumbered and outpositioned, he said. Our defeat will be swift, I fear. Malice would not accept the news. She struck Risen with a blow that knocked the patron halfway across the floor. Then she spun on Joe Axel. You must summon your band, Malice cried the mercenary. Quickly! Matron, Joe Axel stuttered, obviously at a loss. Brigand death is a secretive group. We do not engage in open warfare. Uh, to do so would invoke the wrath of the ruling council. I will pay you whatever you desire, the desperate matron mother promised. But the cost, whatever you desire. Malice snarled again. Such action, Jarlaxle began. Again, Malice did not let him finish his argument. Save my house, mercenary, she growled. Your profits will be great, but I warn you, the cost of your failure will be far greater. Jarlaxle did not appreciate being threatened especially by a lame matron mother whose entire world was fast crumbling around her. But in the mercenary's ears, the sweet ring of the word profits outweighed the threat of a thousand times over. After ten straight years of exorbitant rewards in the Dord and Hunet conflict, Jalaxa did not doubt Malice's willingness or ability to pay as promised, nor did he doubt that his deal would prove even more lucrative than the agreement he had struck with Matron Senefe Honet earlier that same ten day. As you wish, he said to Matron Malice with a bow and a sweep of a garish hat. I will see what I can do. A wink at Dinan set the other boy at his heels, and he exited the room. When the two got out on the balcony overlooking the door and compound, they saw that the situation was even more desperate than Risen had described. The soldiers of House de Warden, still alive, were trapped in and around one of the huge stalagmite mounds anchoring the front gate. One of Hunet's flying soldiers dropped onto the balcony at the sight of a Dorden noble, but Dylan dispatched the intruder with a single blurring attack routine. Well done, Jalaxel commented, giving Dinan an approving nod. He moved to pat the elder boy Dorden on the shoulder, but Dinan slipped out of his reach. We have other business, he pointedly reminded Jalaxel. Call your troops and quickly, else I feel that House Hunet will win the day. Be at ease, my friend Dinan, Jalaxel laughed. I he pulled a small whistle from around his neck and blew into it. Dinan heard not a sound, but the instrument was magically tuned exclusively for the ears of members of Brigandeth. The elder boy, Dorden, watched in amazement as Jarlaxle calmly puffed out a specific cadence. Then he watched in even greater amazement as more than a hundred of House Hunet soldiers turned against their comrades. Brigandeth owed allegiance only to Brigandeth. They could not attack us, Malice said stubbornly, pacing about the chamber. The Spider Queen would not aid them in their venture. They are winning without the Spider Queen's aid, Risen reminded her, prudently ducking to the room's farthest corner, even as he spoke the unwanted words. You said that they would never attack, Brisa growled at her mother, even as you explained why we would not 
dared to attack them. Brisa remembered the conversation vividly, for it was she who suggested the open attack on House Onet. Malice had scolded her harshly and publicly, and now Brisa meant to return the humiliation. Her voice dripped to angry sarcasm as she aimed each word at her mother. Could it be that Matron Malice de Worden has erred? Malice's reply came in the form of a glare that wavered somewhere between rage and terror. Brisa returned the threatening look without ambiguity, and suddenly the matron mother of the house de Worden did not feel so very invincible and sure of her actions. She started forward nervously a moment later when Maya, the youngest of the Doran daughters, entered the room. They have breached the house, Brisa cried, assuming the worst. She grabbed at her snake-headed whip, and we have not even begun our preparations for defense. No, Maya quickly corrected. No enemies have crossed the balcony. The battle has turned against House Tunet. As I knew it would, Malice observed, pulling herself straight and speaking pointedly at Brisa. Foolish is the house that moves without the favor of Loth. Despite her proclamations, though, Malice guessed the, that more than the judgment of the Spider Queen had come into play out in the courtyard. Reasoning had her inescapably had led her inescapably to Jalaxel and his untrustworthy band of rogues. Jalaxel stepped off the balcony and used his innate drow abilities to levitate down to the cavern floor. Seeing no need to involve himself in a battle that was obviously under control, Dinan rested back and watched the mercenary go. Considering all that had just transpired, Jalaxel had played both sides off against the other, and once again, the mercenary and his band had been the only true winners. Brigandierth was undeniably unscrupulous, but Dinan had to admit, undeniably effective. Dinan found that he liked the renegade. The accusation has been properly delivered to Matron Benray? Malice asked Brisa when the light of Narbondal, the magically heated stalagmite mound that served as the time clock of Mental Branson, began its steady climb, marking the dawn of the next day. The ruling house expected their visit, Brisa replied with a smirk. All of the city whispers of the attack and how House Dorden repelled the invaders of House Hunet. Malice futilely tried to hide her vain smile. She enjoyed the intention and the glory that she knew would be lavished upon her house. The ruling council will be convened this very day, Brisa went on, no doubt to the dismay of Matron Senefe Honet and her doomed children. Malice nodded her agreement. To eradicate a rival house and Menza Brandon was a perfectly acceptable practice among the drow, but to fail in the attempt, to leave even one witness of noble blood alive to make an accusation, invited the judgment of the ruling council, a wrath that wrought absolute destruction in his wake. A knock turned them both toward the room's ornate door. You are summoned, matron, Risen said as he entered. Matron Banray has sent a chariot for you. Malice and Brisa exchanged hopeful but nervous glances. When punishment fell upon House Hornet, House Dorden would move into the eighth rank of the city hierarchy, a most desirable position. 
Only the major mothers of the top eight houses were accorded a seat on the city's ruling council. Already? Risa asked her mother. Malice only shrugged in reply and followed Risen out of the room and down to the house's balcony. Risen offered her a hand of assistance, which she promptly and stubbornly slapped away. Her pride apparent with every move, Malice stepped over the railing and floated down to the courtyard where the bulk of her remaining soldiery was gathered. The floating, blue-glowing disk bearing the insignia of House Banray hovered just outside the blasted adamantine gate of the Dorden compound. Malice proudly strode through the gathered crowd. Dark elves fell over each other, trying to get out of her way. This was her day, she decided, the day she achieved the seat on the ruling council, the position she so greatly deserved. Major Mother, I will accompany you through the city, offered Tinan, standing at the gate. You'll remain here with the rest of the family, Malice corrected. The summons is for me alone. How can you know, Dinan questioned, but he realized he had overstepped his rank as soon as the words had left his mouth. By the time Malice turned her reprimanding glare toward him, he had already disappeared into the mob of soldiers. Proper respect. Malice muttered under her breath, and she instructed nearest soldiers to remove a section of the propped and tied gate. With a final victorious glance at her subjects, Malice stepped out and took a seat on the floating disc. This was not the first time that Malice had accepted such an invitation from Matron Banray, so she was not the least bit surprised when several Banray clerics moved out from the shadows to encircle the floating disc in a protective guard. The last time Malice had made this trip, she had been tentative, not really understanding Banray's intent on summoning her. This time, though, Malice folded her arms defiantly across her chest and let the curious onlookers view her in all her splendor of her victory. Malice accepted the stairs proudly, feeling positively superior even when the disc reached the fabulous web-like fence of the house banray with its thousand marching guards and towering flagmites and stalactite structures, Malice's pride had not diminished. She was at the ruling council now, or soon would be. No longer did she have to feel intimidated anywhere in the city. Or so she thought. Your presence is requested in the chapel, one of Benry's clerics said to her when the disc came to a stop at the base of the great domed building's sweeping stairs. Malice stepped down and ascended the polished stones. As soon as she entered, she noticed a figure sitting on one of the chairs atop the raised central altar. The seated drow, the only other person visible in the chapel, apparently did not notice that Malice had entered. She sat back comfortably, watching the huge illusory image at the top of the dome shift through its forms, first appearing as a gigantic spider, then a beautiful drow female. As she moved closer, Malice recognized the robes of a matron mother.
A seated mother was not old beyond the years of a drow and as withered and dried as some bloodless corpse. Indeed, this drow was no older than malice and quite diminutive. Malice recognized her all too well. Sinefe! she cried, nearly toppling. Malice, the other replied calmly. A thousand troublesome possibilities rolled through Malice's mind. Senefe Hunet should have been huddling in fear in her doomed house, awaiting the annihilation of her family. Yet here Senefe sat, comfortably in the hallowed quarters of Menzelbrand's most important family. You do not belong in this place, Malice protested. Her slender fists clenched at her side. She considered the possibilities of attacking a rival there and then, of throttling Sanafe with her own hands. Be at ease, Malice, Sanafe remarked casually. I am here by the invitation of Matron Banray, as are you. The mention of Matron Banray and the reminder of where they were calmed the Malice considerably. One did not act out of sorts in the chapel of House Banray. Malice moved to the opposite end of the circular dais and took a seat, her gaze never leaving the smugly smiling face of Senefe Hunet. After a few interminable moments of silence, Malice had to speak her mind. It was House Hunet that attacked my family in the last dark of Nobondo, she said. I have many witnesses to the fact. There can be no doubt. None. Senefe replied, her agreement catching Malice off guard. You admit the deed, she barked. Indeed, said Senefe. Never have I denied it. Yet you live, Malice sneered. The laws of Menzelbrand and demand justice upon you and your house. Justice? Senefe laughed at the absurd notion. Justice had never been more than a facade and a means of keeping the pretense of order in the chaotic Menzelbrandsen. I acted as the Spider Queen demanded of me. If the Spider Queen approved of your methods, you would have been victorious, Malice reasoned. Not so, interrupted another voice. Malice and Sinefe turned about just as Matron Banry magically appeared, sitting comfortably in the chair farthest back on the dais. Malice wanted to scream out at the withered matron mother, both for spying on her conversation and for apparently refuting her claims against Sinefe. Malice had managed to survive the dangers of Menza Branza for five hundred years, though primarily because she understood the implications of angering one such as matron Banray. I claim the rights of accusation against House Hunet, she said calmly. Granted, replied Matron Banray, as you have said, and as Sinefe agreed, there can be no doubt. Malice turned triumphantly on Sinefe, but the matron mother of House Hunet still sat relaxed and unconcerned. Then why is she here? Malice cried, her tone edged in explosive violence. Sinefe is an outlaw. She... We have not argued against your words, Matron Banry interrupted. How should it attacked and failed? The penalties for such a deed are well known and agreed upon. 
and a ruling council will convene this very day to see that justice is carried through. Then why is Sinefe here? Malice demanded. You doubt the wisdom of my attack? Sinefe asked Malice, trying to keep a chuckle under her breath. You are defeated, Malice reminded her matter-of-factly. That alone should provide your answer. Love demanded the attack, Matron Banray said. Then why was Halshunet defeated, Malice asked stubbornly, if the Spider Queen... I did not say the Spider Queen had imbued her blessings upon Halshunet. Matron Benray interrupted somewhat crossly. Malice shifted back in her seat, remembering her place and her predicament. I said that Loth demanded the attack, Matron Benry continued. For ten thousand years, all the men's of Baranzin had suffered the spectacle of your private war. The intrigue and excitement wore away long ago. Let me assure you both, it had been decided. And it was declared Malice, rising from her seat. House Orden has proven victorious, and I claim the rights of accusation against Senefe Honet and her family. Sit down, Malice, Senefe said. There is more to this than your simple rights of accusation. Malice fell, looked to Matron Banray for confirmation. Though, considering the present situation, she could not doubt Senefe's words. It is done, Matron Banray said to her. House Hodorden has won, and House Hornet will be no more. Malice fell back into her seat, smiling smugly at Senefe. Still, though, the matron mother of House Hornet did not seem the least bit concerned. I will watch the destruction of your house with great pleasure, Malice assured her rival. She turned to Banray. When will you when will the punishment be exacted? It is already done, Major Banray replied mysteriously. Senefe lives, Malice cried. No, the withered matron mother corrected. She or Senefe Honet lives. Now Malice was beginning to understand. House Benray had always been opportunist, opportunistic. Could it be that Matron Benray was stealing the high priestesses of House Unet to add to her own collection? You will shelter her? Malice dared to ask. No, Matron Benray replied evenly. That task will fall to you. Malice's eyes went wide. Of all the many duties she had ever been appointed in her days as a high priestess of Loth, she could think of none more distasteful. She is my enemy. You ask that I give her shelter? She is your daughter. Matron Benry shot back. Her tone softened and a wry smile cracked her thin lips. Your oldest daughter returned from travels to Chedna's or some other city of our kin. 
Why are you doing this? Malice demanded. It is unprecedented. Not completely correct, replied Matron Benray. Her fingers tapped together out in front of her while she sank back within her thoughts, remembering some of the strange consequences of the endless line of battles within the drow city. Onwardly, your observations are correct, she continued to explain to Malice, but surely you are wise enough to know that many things occur behind the appearances in Mentoberanzin. House Honet must be destroyed. That cannot be changed. And all of the nobles of House Honet must be slaughtered. It is, after all, the civilized thing to do. She paused a moment to ensure that Malice was fully comprehending the meaning of her next statement. They must appear, at least, to be slaughtered. And you will arrange this? Malice asked. I already have, Matron Benray assured her. But what is the purpose? When now Sunat initiated its attack against you, did you call upon the Spider Queen in your struggles? Matron Benray asked bluntly. The question startled Malice, and the expected answer upset her more than a little. And when House Honet was repelled, Matron Benry went on coldly. Did you give praise to the Spider Queen? Did you call upon the handmaiden of love in your moment of victory? Malice Dorden. Am I on trial here? Malice cried. You know the answer, Matron Banry. She looked at Senate uncomfortably as she replied, fearing that she might be giving some valued information away. You are aware of my situation concerning the Spider Queen. I dare not summon a Yoklol until I have seen some sign that I have regained Loth's favor. And you have seen no sign, Senefe remarked. None other than my, the defeat of my arrival, Malice growled back at her. That was not a sign from the Spider Queen, Matron Banray assured them both. Love did not involve herself in your struggles. She only demanded that they be finished. Is she pleased at the outcome? Malice asked bluntly. That is yet to be determined, replied Matron Banray. Many years ago, Love made clear her desires that Malice would sit about in the ruling council. Beginning with the next light of Nabandon, it shall be so. Malice's chin rose with pride. But understand your dilemma. Matron Benray scolded her. Rising up out of her chair, Malice slumped back immediately. You have lost more than half of your soldiers, Benray explained, and you did not have a large family surrounding and supporting you. Your rule, the eighth house of the city, that it is known by all that you are not in the Spider Queen's favor. How long do you believe House Dorden will hold his position? 
your seat on the ruling council is in jeopardy even before you have assumed it. Malice could not refute the ancient matron's logic. They both knew the ways of Menza Baranzan. With House de Warden so obviously crippled, some lesser house would soon take advantage of the opportunity to better its station. The attack by House Hunet would not be the last battle fought in the de Warden compound. So I give you to you, Senefe Hunet, Shanane de Warden, a new daughter, a new high priestess said Matron Banray. She turned then to Senefe to continue her explanation, but Malice found herself suddenly distracted as a voice called out to her in her thoughts, a telepathic message. Keep her only as long as you need her, Malice Dorden, it said. Malice looked around, guessing the source of the communication. On a previous visit to House Benry, she had met Matron Benry's mind flayer, a telepathic beast. The creature was nowhere in sight, but neither had Matron Benry been when Malice had first entered the chapel. Malice looked around alternately at the remaining empty seats atop the dais, but the stone furniture showed no signs of any occupants. A second telepathic message left her no doubts. You will know when the time is right. And the remaining fifty of House Nets soldiers, Matron Benry was saying. Do you agree, Matron Malice? Malice looked at Cinefe, an expression that might have been acceptance or wicked irony. I do, she replied. Go then, Shinane-Dorden, Matron Benray instructed Senefe. Join your remaining soldiers in the courtyard. My wizards will get you to House Dorden in secrecy. Senefe cast a suspicious glance Malice's way, then moved out of the great chapel. I understand, Malice said to her hostess when Senefe had gone. You understand nothing. Matron Benry yelled back at her, suddenly enraged. I have done all that I may for you, Malister Warden. It was last wish that you sit upon the ruling council, and I have arranged at great personal cost for that to be so. Malice knew then, beyond any doubt, that House Banray had prompted House Hunets to action. How deep did Matron Benray's influence go, Malice wondered. Perhaps the withered Matron Mother had also anticipated and possibly arranged the action of Jarlaxle and the soldiers of Brigandeath, ultimately deciding the factor in the battle. She would have to find out about that possibility. Malice promised herself Jarlaxle had dipped greedy fingers quite deeply into her purse. No more. Matron Benry continued. Now you are left to your own wiles. You have not found the fervor of Loth, and that is the only way you and House de Warden will survive. Malice's fist clenched the arm of her chair so tightly that she almost expected to hear the stone cracking beneath it. She had hoped 
with the defeat of House Hunet that she had put the blasphemous deeds of her youngest son behind her. You know what must be done, said Matron Banray. Correct the wrong malice. I have put myself forward on your behalf. I will not tolerate continued failure. The arrangements have been explained to us, Matron Mother, Tinan said to Malice when she returned to the adamantine gates of House Dorden. She followed, he followed Malice across the compound and then levitated up beside her to the balcony outside the noble quarters of the house. All of the family is gathered in the anteroom, Tinan went on. Even the newest member, he added with a wink. Malice did not respond to her son's feeble attempt at humor. She pushed Dinan aside roughly and stormed down the central corridor, commanding the anteroom door to open with a single powerful word. The family scrambled out of her way as she crossed to her throne on the far side of the spider-shaped table. They had anticipated a long meeting to learn the new situation confronting them and the challenges they must overcome. What they got instead was a brief glimpse at the rage burning within Matron Malice. She glared at them alternatively letting each of them know beyond any doubt that she would not accept anything less than she demanded. Her voice grating as though her mouth were filled with pebbles, she growled. Find Trist and bring him to me. Brisa started to protest, but Malice shot her a glare so utterly cold and threatening that it stole the words away. The eldest daughter, as stubborn as a mother and always ready for an argument, averted her eyes, and no one else in the anteroom, though they shared Brees' unspoken concerns, made any motion to argue. Melis then left them to sort out the specifics of how they would accomplish the task. Details were not at all important to Malice. The only part she meant to play in all of this was the thrust of the ceremonial dagger into her youngest son's chest. And that, my friends, is the end of episode one of R.A. Salvatore's The Legend of Drizzt, book two, Exile. Thank you all for listening. I hope that you continue to listen in. Tell all your friends, all your family about it. I would love to see more people listen to this. And contact me through Facebook at Chadwick Daigle. And Twitter, my name is at Crow underscore HVVH. And it is Crow Adeo. On Instagram, I believe it is. I'll have to double-check all that stuff. Write it down there somewhere for you. But I want to hear what you think. All of the episodes will be around the same length in the future. And I will read one, two to three chapters every episode. And we'll get through this wonderful book together and listen to the story of the legend of Drizzt. Um, 
Stay tuned. I will announce soon that I will have another podcast a little bit differently than this. I will be joined by some friends. I will be hosting a Dungeons and Dragons game. We're going to start off with a podcast and then eventually we're going to move on to streaming live on Twitch and then posting to YouTube later on. And we will be starting with Waterdeep Dragon Heist. I hope to see you all there. Well, see that you're all listening. Thank you again for listening. My name is Chadwick Daigle, and this is The Legend of Drizzt. <laughs>